0: Luke, thank you so much for filling in today as our song leader. We didn't think that Matt and Karen were going to be with us this morning, but in a turn of providence, they were able to join us after all. So glad to see them and to have Luke's help as well. Great to have everybody's help yesterday. This was a a fun weekend at Grace. I arrived here about 8 o'clock in the morning yesterday and already this building was a beehive of activity. We had some guys um, working on the church lawnmower outside and then inside we had some guys working on the auditorium. And then later in the afternoon, another group of mostly ladies came and they were filling sandwich bags full of candy and gospel tracts and church invitations and uh, preparing for our Reformation Day candy and track distribution. Uh, We also had ladies here throughout the day helping with cleanup, uh, providing food for the men who were working on the building, and it was just a a cool day to be here and to see so many in our congregation uh, willing to volunteer their time, their talents, their energies to advance the mission of this church. Well, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 2 now. Nehemiah chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 8. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 398. Page 398. As always, I'm going to begin in a word of prayer, and then we'll consider the text together. Let's bow in prayer now. Our Lord, we do thank you so much for establishing our church, for giving us 21 years of faithful ministry. And we thank you for how you have prospered this church in every way. And Lord, we pray that you would continue that good work. And Lord, I pray that we would always be a congregation that is built firmly on the foundation of your word. We thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the book of Nehemiah. And as we continue our series through this book today, would you please help us mentally to engage with the text and help us, Lord, to apply the text to our lives. We know that that if that is to happen, then your spirit must be at work. And so, Lord, would your spirit please come minister to our spirits. And might he bring about that spiritual change that we all so desperately desire and need? We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I opened last week's message with the story of Martin Luther. I'd like to begin today with John Calvin. Now, John Calvin was a Frenchman born in 1509. And right away, his parents realized they had a prodigy on their hands. John Calvin was an absolutely brilliant child. So brilliant that by the age of 14, he was accepted into the most prestigious university in all of Europe. At that time, it was the University of Paris. And he earned his Bachelor of Theology there, and then his, ba- his a Master of Theology, completing both degrees while he was 19 years old. He then transferred to another university where he pursued a master's degree in law. So by the age of 23, he had two master's degrees, one theology, one law. And as he was studying for his law degree, he encountered the writings of Martin Luther, Luther was about 25 years older than Calvin. Luther had been pursuing reformation in Germany then almost as long as Calvin had been alive. But Calvin finally encountered Luther's writings there in law school. And as he compared Luther's writings with the scriptures, he realized that Luther was right. You understand that all Calvin's life up to this point, he had believed that a man is saved by grace, through faith, plus works. Which is to say that he believed that Christ's atoning work for us was only a partial atonement. And that Christ supplied part of what we needed to be justified in the sight of God, but that we had to supply the other part. We do that by our good works. And that through this combination of Christ's work for us and our work for ourselves, that we would earn a righteous standing with God. This is what John Calvin believed. But then he studied Luther. And from Luther, he went to the scriptures. And he learned that, that a righteous standing before God is not something that we earn, not in part or in whole. It isn't something that we earn. Rather, that righteous standing is a gift of God. he given to us when we simply repent of our sins and believe in Him. Calvin came to understand this in his early 20s, and he was born again. Immediately afterwards, Calvin started throwing himself into the reformation of the church in France. And because of his intellectual gifts, he started helping as a speech writer, doing, doing things like this. Well, at that time, France was a Roman Catholic country, and so the persecution was very hard against those Protestant reformers. Calvin was forced to flee France, and he went to Switzerland. There in Switzerland, he commenced a life of scholarship, and he began writing the book that he would become most famous for. It was called The Institutes of the Christian Religion, and basically it was a theology textbook. It's one of the most influential works of theology in the history of the church. In fact, it is still in print today. He published the first edition of his Institutes at the age of 26. Then he went on a journey from Switzerland to Strasbourg, Germany. and He was going to do some additional research and writing there. But the journey took him through the city of Geneva. Geneva at the time was about the size of Marshall, and it was right at the border of Switzerland and France. And Calvin needed to pass through that city on his way to Strasbourg. Well, as soon as he entered the city, he was recognized by the town residents as the author of the Institutes. they were so excited to see Calvin in their city. And they, they ran up to Calvin and they said to him, you have got to meet our leader, William Farrell. For the last 10 years, Farrell had been pursuing the reformation of the church of Geneva. And so they introduced Calvin to Farrell and right away, Farrell realized that this was the man that Geneva needed. Pharaoh was very zealous to bring the Protestant Reformation to Geneva, but he had a very, a very harsh personality, so he had a tendency to really rub people the wrong way. And he also lacked the intellectual gifts that Calvin possessed, and so he knew that he could only take this Reformation so far. So he, he presented his proposal to Calvin. He said, Calvin, I want to hand the reins of leadership over to you. I want you to become the, the pastor of the Church of Geneva. Complete this Reformation for us. Calvin said, no. Calvin said, you don't understand, Pharaoh. I am not a people person. And pastors need to be people persons. He said, the only thing I'm suited for is scholarship. So the best way that I can serve the Reformation is just to lock myself away in my study and read books and write books. And that's what I'm called to do. Well, Pharaoh was very angry by Calvin's reply. And so Pharaoh uttered a curse on Calvin. And he said, Calvin, may God curse all of your labors. May he give you no health. May he give you no sleep. May all of your scholarship be a miserable failure. May all your teeth fall out. May you get bed bugs. I'm making some of this stuff up, but you guys get the idea. He uttered all of these imprecations on Calvin. And it scared Calvin to death. Calvin changed his mind. He said, Okay, I'll stay in Geneva. Calvin became the pastor of the church in Geneva. And the first thing that he started doing was was preaching expositionally through the scriptures. That means that he would start with a book of the Bible and he would just systematically preach through the book one passage at a time. And as he went through the scriptures in this manner, he was teaching people the content of scripture, he was teaching them the doctrines that derive from scripture. And as the congregation learned the scriptures, he began to implement necessary reforms in the church. Now this was hard work, and it required a lot of patience, there was a lot of opposition along the way, but slowly and steadily Calvin pursued his reformation. Well things finally came to a head on Easter Sunday of 1538. This is the Sunday that Calvin began practicing church discipline. There were several prominent members of the church in Geneva who were clearly not born again. And these men showed no no evidence of love for God or his people. And their their lives were, were scandalous. And so Calvin excommunicated them. To excommunicate is literally to exclude them from Communion, communion being the mark of church membership. He excommunicated these these prominent Genevan citizens and members, and the men were furious. They went straight to the city council in Geneva, and the city council summoned Calvin to appear before them. And the city council said this to Calvin they said, Calvin, you reinstate these men to membership, and if you don't, you are gone. You're fired. Leave town. Now think of that. That was the state of the church at that time. The city council was deciding who was a member of the church, who was not a member of the church. They were paying the pastor's salary, and they got to decide who would serve as pastor. Well, this confronted Calvin with a real crisis. He truly believed that the well-being of the church was at stake here. He believed that Christ was the head of the church, not the Geneva City Council. And he believed that Christ clearly states in his word who is qualified for church membership. And he believed that Christ had entrusted to the elders of the church, not city council members, but to the elders of the church, who should be in the membership and who should be out. Calvin had a firm conviction about these things, but he also realized that if he was to stand firm on this, he could lose everything. He was going to lose his job, he would lose his, his home, who knows what would happen to him. So he was forced to make a difficult choice. What Calvin decided is that this was a hill worth dying on. He said Christ will be the head of the church in Geneva. And the elders that Christ has established in this church will decide who will receive communion and who will not. And this will be a healthy church. It will not be corrupted any longer by a city council that doesn't understand the scriptures. He decided that it was a hill to die on. And so he looked those city council members in the eye and he said, I will not comply with your orders. I will not reinstate these men to membership. Of course, Calvin was fired. And he was run out of town, he fled to Germany. And I wish I had time to give you the rest of the details of his life. But it'll have to suffice to say that three years after he was exiled, the city council reached out to Calvin by letter, and they said, Calvin, we need you to come back. They said, since you left, the city has fallen apart, the church has fallen apart, you're the only man who can turn this thing around. We're willing to follow your program now. Calvin received that letter and he said, no way. <laughs> he, said, he said, I'd rather die a hundred deaths than to go back to Geneva because if I go back to Geneva, I'll have to die a thousand deaths every day. But six months later, he changed his mind. He went back to Geneva And he would spend the next 25 years of his life laboring for the reformation of the church in Geneva. It was very hard. He continued to face a lot of opposition. But he stuck with it, and he was there until the day of his death. And the Lord used John Calvin and the other elders of that church to do some incredible things. During his tenure there, Calvin completed a commentary set on the Bible, still in print today. He also had a hand in producing the Geneva Study Bible, which was the world's first study Bible. Calvin also established a school called the Geneva Academy. And, most remarkable of all, the Church of Geneva, during those 25 years of Calvin's tenure, the church sent out 1,300 missionaries. And they spread all over the European continent, and some went as far as South America, establishing gospel churches. Millions today owe a debt to Calvin's ministry. Calvin finally passed away on May 27th of 1564, he was about 55 years old. And friends, John Calvin is a profile in moral courage. Now, what is moral courage? Well, Rosabeth Cantor of Harvard says, "...moral courage is that which enables us to stand up for principles rather than to stand on the sidelines." Another writer states this, quote: "...moral courage is the courage to take principled action even at the risk of adverse consequences." Friends, many believe that moral courage is the most important quality of leadership. Because after all, if you don't have a moral core, what are you standing for? What, what are you leading people to do without this moral core? It's the most important thing about a leader. And it is a critical virtue for anyone who would be used of God to bring reformation to his people. Now friends, as we return to the book of Nehemiah today, we find that he was also a leader with moral courage. Now if you're just joining us this week, we've been in this series through the book of Nehemiah and we're looking at this this man, a man who was the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes in the land of Persia many, many centuries ago. But he was also an Israelite who had a love for God and a heart for God's people. And we've been looking at how God used this man, along with a a small handful of others, but how God used this man to complete the reformation of his people in Israel. And we're looking at Nehemiah's story in order to learn about the, the principles of a godly reformer. What drives a godly reformer to do his work? And we're studying these principles in the hope that we might be able to apply them to our own lives and that perhaps God might even use us and our church to bring scriptural reform to the people of God today. We've learned a number of important things already from this book. Last week we learned that godly reformers are people of prayer. And that's because if reformation is to take hold, it's going to be a work of God. This is a spiritual work. And so we pray to God to work in hearts, to raise up leaders, and then to work in hearts so that there is a new appreciation for God's words, a new new desire in the will to bend to God's words, a new zeal for His cause. Godly reformers are people of prayer. Well, friends, from today's text, we're going to learn this truth, that godly reformers are also people of moral courage. They're people of moral courage. That is to say, they are people with the willingness to take a principled stand, even when there is danger involved. Now, let's see this from Nehemiah's story. We're looking at chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. I'll begin with the first verse. It says, Now in the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I'd not been sad in his presence, that is, not until now. So looking back at the the first statement of the verse, we are in the month of Nisan, that's springtime on our calendar. This means that it's been about four months since Nehemiah first heard the awful news about the state of God's people in Israel. Remember, the Israelites had been in in exile in pagan empires for generations, but God had begun to to bring them back into the Holy Land. And for about 80 years now, in a variety of, of, of waves, God's people have been returning to the Holy Land. Nehemiah was one of those who remained in exile. He was the cupbearer to the king of Persia. But one day Nehemiah heard from his brother and from a contingent that had come from the Holy Land that things were not going well for the people of God there. Their temple was still not completed. The whole city of Jerusalem, which was their capital city, it was still lying in ruins. The people of God were still at a spiritual low. They were depressed and beleaguered. And this was awful news to Nehemiah. And he cried, and he fasted, and he prayed, and he began thinking about what God might do to turn this around, how God might use him to lead a reformation, a revival of his people. And this has now been going on for four months. For four months, he's just been praying and fasting and crying and wondering how he might be used of God to help his people. Well, finally, finally, Nehemiah had come to some conclusions. He had decided that he was in a position to help God's people. And he chose the day when he would make his first move. And that's what we're seeing here in chapter 2, verse 1. This is setting the stage for the entire scene. Four months have passed and the day has finally come. This day was a lot like any other day in his life. He was standing beside the king as he always did. And a goblet of wine was brought into the king's presence as happened every day. Nehemiah took that goblet, he took a drink from the wine to make sure it was not poison, just like he always did, and then he handed it off to King Artaxerxes. But one thing was different on this occasion. We read it here at the end of the verse. On this occasion, Nehemiah allowed himself to appear sad in the king's presence, That is to say, he allowed all of the grief that he had been feeling these past four months to finally express themselves on his face. Now, why does Nehemiah do this? Well, he does it because there were rules in those days about servants and kings. And a servant couldn't just strike up a conversation with his king. Nehemiah couldn't just walk into the king's throne room and say, Hey, king, I've got this problem. There is... All of this this trouble in the Holy Land, you know, the people of God are are beleaguered. He couldn't just do that. He had to allow King Artaxerxes to initiate the conversation. But how is is that going to happen? Well, Nehemiah came up with this idea after four months of praying about it and thinking about it he came up with this idea that he would present himself before the king and that he would just allow the king to see his grief. Now, this in itself was a breach of protocol. You don't bring your personal problems into the king's presence. But it was a minor breach, so he does it. And looking at verse 2, we find that the plan works. The plan works. Verse 2, And the king said to me, Why is your face sad? So Artaxerxes notices that Nehemiah has made himself appear sad. And the word translated sad here, it means overcome with sorrow. It's overcome. The king goes on. Why is your face sad seeing that you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Nehemiah, you look really bad. I'm reminded of what some of Abraham Lincoln's cabinet members said about him in the throes of the Civil War. They said they had never seen a sadder face in their lives than the face of Abraham Lincoln. I imagine that's what King Artaxerxes was thinking as he looked at Nehemiah. That is the saddest face I have ever seen. And so he says to Nehemiah, why are you so sad? You're you're not sick. You, You must be heart sick. What's wrong in your heart? You know, Artaxerxes was exactly right. That is what was wrong with Nehemiah. He was heart sick. He was completely woebegone. His heart was bleeding for the people of God. For 80 years... God's people had been moving back into the Holy Land. By now, Israel should be thriving. The temple should be up. There should be worshipers there. The city walls should be built. That, that city should be a thriving metropolis. God's people should be as, as a, a city on a hill. None of that had happened. He was absolutely heartsick. Friends, if you would be a leader, with moral courage you must be able to feel the weight of a moral crisis that's what we see in Nehemiah here and how does how does that happen how does that 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 weight come upon us well in this way it happens when we have developed our moral core when there are truths that we are clinging to and there are, are virtues, and there are causes, and there are people that are so important to us that, that the thought of, of the loss of these truths, or these virtues, or these people or institutions, when the thought of the loss of them is too much for you to bear, that is when you know you have become the kind of leader that is needed Nehemiah was a lover of God. And he wanted to see God's cause advancing in the world. And he was a lover of the people of God. And he wanted to see them accomplishing God's mission. But in their current state, that was not happening. This is what caused Nehemiah's heart to break. And this was the motivation he needed to act. The the things that he most valued in the world were under threat. He had to act to remedy this. Friend, you will become a a leader with moral courage too. If you will have this firm moral core such that when you see the things that you most value crumbling around you, you will not be able to help yourself. You will have to stand up and do something about it. Now continuing on with Nehemiah's story. Verse 2 says that the The king saw the sadness on Nehemiah's face. He responded by saying, Nehemiah, you must be heart sick. Nehemiah's been waiting for this moment. He finally is going to get to talk to King Artaxerxes about the problem. He's been praying for it, planning how he's going to do this. But now the moment finally comes, and look what it says. He says, Then I was very much afraid. And here we see Nehemiah's humanity. Yes, he is a man of God. Yes, he's been praying and planning for four months. But when the moment finally comes, and he has to actually open his mouth and speak to the most powerful man in the world, he is scared to death. Why is he so scared? Well, friends, there's a wrinkle in the story that we haven't talked about yet. You see, the main reason why Jerusalem was still in ruins is because King Artaxerxes himself had decreed that construction on the city must stop. We learn of that in Ezra chapter 4. You see, some advisors had come to Artaxerxes while the the city was, was being rebuilt. And these advisors said, Hey, Artaxerxes, don't you realize the reputation that Jerusalem has This city has always been a seedbed for rebellion. Every time an empire occupies the Holy Land, Jerusalem rises up and fights back. And they said to King Artaxerxes, you don't want that to happen to you, do you? You've got to stop the rebuilding. And so this is why Nehemiah is scared. The Holy Land must be rebuilt. It must be. God's people must have their temple back. They must have their capital. And yet, Nehemiah's boss is the one who had brought it all to a stop, who had not allowed the construction to continue. Well, how is King Artaxerxes going to respond if Nehemiah says, King, we have to rebuild that city? How's he going to take this? Remember, Nehemiah is also an Israelite. He's a foreigner. So, if this Israelite says we need to rebuild Israel, is King Artaxerxes going to think that Nehemiah is trying to foment rebellion? Is he part of some insurrectionist group? Will Nehemiah be imprisoned or killed? All of this must have been going through Nehemiah's head as he began to speak to Artaxerxes. And yet, friends, as great as his fear was, he wasn't going to allow that fear to control him because he was of the conviction that Jerusalem must be rebuilt. God's people could not be revived until their institutions were revived, and that included the temple and the capital city. So as scared as Nehemiah was, he was going to press on, keep Keep addressing the issue. Friends, this is what moral courage is all about. It is conviction conquering your fears. Having moral courage means that you feel the weight of the moral crisis and that you overcome the fears that would lead you to inaction. And then verses 3 through 8, we see that it means boldly pursuing a wise course of action. That includes speaking to those who created the crisis, speaking respectfully, but speaking clearly. Look at verse 3 with me. Nehemiah writes, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Now he's beginning in a way that will communicate his love for Artaxerxes. So Artaxerxes, I'm about to tell you something that's very hard for me to talk about. There's a chance that you're going to take this wrong, but I want you to know before I've said anything else, I love you. I value your kingship. I hope you live a good long time. I want your kingdom to thrive. And yet there's also a problem that I have to address. So he goes on. He says, why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lie in ruins and the gates have been destroyed by fire? Now, friends, this is a masterclass in diplomacy. Notice, first off, he avoids mentioning Jerusalem by name. And that's intentional because he knows the word Jerusalem has some really negative connotations for a Persian king. This is the seedbed for rebellion. He's not going to mention that name. So instead, he just calls it the city. And then he explains his personal connection to the city. It's the city where his ancestors are buried. So, King Artaxerxes, I need to talk to you. Yes, I am brokenhearted, and it's because my homeland, my city, the place where my loved ones are buried, this city is in ruins. He helps Artaxerxes understand his personal connection to the city. And he explains the nature of the crisis. He explains how the people of God were in crisis. So he's very careful about it, but he's also very clear. He says what needs to be said. Artaxerxes, I know you stopped construction in Israel, but it's got to resume. The temple has got to be rebuilt. Those walls have to go back up. It has to be done. You know, friends, it's easy to call out the sins of the powerless, you parents with small kids, you've had this happen. Your, your kids will be playing nicely together in another room, and then suddenly you hear the voices are elevating, and then the, the play turns into a fight, and the next thing you know, one of your young children has hauled off and hit the other kid. And what do you do? Well, immediately you insert yourself into the situation. You don't hesitate. And you break them up and you say, listen, in this house, we don't tolerate violence. God calls us to peace. We're going to talk through our differences. And maybe you'll make them apologize to one another. But You have no problem when it's your little kids fighting to have some, some moral clarity and to confront it. But it's a totally different situation when you're the one in the weak position, isn't it? when the one that you need to confront is maybe your boss or your commanding officer or maybe your governor or your president or maybe just a person that you really, really want acceptance from, but they're the one that needs to be confronted. It's a very different situation then. Those cases are hard because they set us up for for loss If you confront your boss, you might lose your job. Confront your commanding officer, you might get a dishonorable discharge. Confront your government, it might mean fines or imprisonment. And so this is why Michael Josephson writes, quote, being honest at the risk of disapproval, lost income, or a maimed career, being accountable when owning up to a mistake can get us in trouble, being fair when we have the power to do otherwise, and following the rules while others get away with whatever they can, these things take inner strength, strength to do what is right, even when it costs more than we want to pay. But friends, that's what it takes to be a courageous, moral leader. People with moral courage don't do the right thing just when it's easy. They do it when it's hard. They do it when it could mean loss. Reformers speak up. They speak up with wisdom and clarity. They speak up even if it's dangerous, and then they pursue a course to rectify the wrong. Beginning with prayer, look at verse 4. It says Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? Nehemiah, you've told me why your heart is breaking, but what do you want done about it? And then end of verse 4 says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. Again, we see Nehemiah's humanity. He's already prayed for four months. But now the moment has come, and he wants this to go just right, and he's scared out of his mind, and he's not exactly sure what to say, how the king's going to respond, so he just throws up this This brief prayer, really quickly, God, please let me say the right thing. And please let the king be receptive to it. Just a a quick prayer in the middle of the conversation. But then, verses 5 to 8, he offers his well-considered plan. Nehemiah says to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. So he has a plan. He's been thinking this through a long time. He says, Artaxerxes, let us rebuild the Holy Land, the temple and the city and its walls. And King, I volunteer myself to lead the project. Let me go back and I will organize the rebuilding effort myself. His plan includes additional details. Verse 7, I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. So it was a 750-mile journey from where Nehemiah was to Jerusalem. A lot of people are going to be curious, what is this Israelite doing, passing through Persia, heading back to the Holy Land? So he says, King, I'm going to need a letter from you so that everybody who stops me along the way knows that I have your permission to go. He has additional details in his plan. It says, verse 8, "...and send a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress and of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy." So, King, I've got a plan. There there are forests around the Holy Land. In fact, we know that Lebanon was famous for its forests and its quality wood. So give me another letter, giving me permission to harvest some of the wood out of your forest, and we'll use that wood to build the, the temple and the gates and build a house for me because I'm going to be there for a while. The king's reply to all of this Well, we see it back in verse 6. He said, The king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone? When will you return? Nehemiah writes, So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. Best possible response. Best possible response. He has prayed. He was scared, but he went forward anyway, and he's prayed during the conversation, and he has laid out the problem, he has laid out a solution, he's offered himself to get the work done, and the king has said yes to all of it. Yes, you can go, yes, you can have my timber, yes, you can rebuild. It's gone exactly right. And look how Nehemiah ends in verse 8. It says, And the king granted me what was asked, What I asked for, excuse me, the the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. And here we see the last quality of a person with moral courage, of a godly reformer. They will also give the glory to God every step of the way. You know, friends, God really is the hero of this story. It's not Nehemiah, it's not King Artaxerxes, it's not anybody else. The hero is God. Because God has been doing a work he has been providentially allowing his people to return to the Holy Land. He worked in King Cyrus's heart, the king who allowed them to start going back into Israel. He's been working in Artaxerxes' heart to grant permission for the rebuilding. He's working in Nehemiah's heart. God is the true hero in this story. God was doing a new work among his people. He was reviving them. He was bringing a complete national reformation. Now, just to summarize all of this, friends, what we have in our passage today is a profile in moral courage, which may be the most fundamental character quality of a godly reformer. It's the ability to stand up for what is right and not to back down, even in the face of danger. It's a quality modeled by Nehemiah here, and also of John Calvin, and of every person that God has used from the beginning until now to bring good to his people And in all of these examples, friends, whether it's Nehemiah or whether it's Calvin, what we really have is just faint reflections of the moral courage of Christ. The one who is willing to come, to live, die, and rise again for us. The one who is silent in the face of his persecutors. The one who is willing to experience death and hell for our sakes. That is the ultimate show of courage. And we are called to be like him. How do we develop moral courage on our own? Well, we've got to solidify our core convictions. That's how it begins. We need to decide from the scriptures what the hills worth dying on are. What truths, what virtues, what institutions, what people are so important that they transcend our own safety, our own lives. We've got to develop our own core, cement it down as the foundation of our lives and say, I am willing, I am willing to fight for these things. We've got to develop that core, resolve to stand for convictions no matter what, pray for the grace to keep that resolution. We need to draw strength from the heroes of the past, people like Nehemiah, people like Calvin especially, especially Christ. We need to learn how to be faithful in the small things. Every day we have an opportunity to take a moral stand, whether it's in our households with our young kids or whether it's in the workplace or wherever we are. Let us learn to be courageous in the small things so that we can build up those muscles for when they're needed in the big things. Friends, the big things will come our way. And let us get into the habit of giving God the credit for every moral victory. The victory will be his in the end. Let's pray now as we close. Father, we thank you for this passage. Thank you for the example you've given us in Nehemiah. And Lord, help us to become leaders with moral courage. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.